Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, October 13th, 2011. Rainy, cold day here in central Indiana. Fuzzy bunny slipper weather if I ever saw it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. As a result of it, we've got to do the comparative work. And today, uh, we're going to start off with uh, a couple of emails. We're going to begin with a couple of emails and then we're going to move out into um, kind of a themed discussion, if you would. And, um, you know, I've been thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking about this whole idea from uh, from Jesus's teaching from John chapter eight, where he literally is saying to the Jews that he's uh, having a dialogue with. These are men whom he has, um, well, a lot of theological common ground. I pointed that out the other day. But uh, one of the things he makes so clear is that these folks are of their father, the devil, and it's um, their will is to do well the will of their father, not the not the will of God, but the will of their father, which is to lie, to you know, to basically deceive, uh, to not tell the truth. They can't tell the truth because uh, their word doesn't, uh, God's word does not abide in them. They don't abide in the word of Christ. They can't bear to hear. The truth, and so uh, you know, I was thinking about this, just kind of you know, kind of working this through, and um, I found three things that, uh, well, three, well, four. <laughs> I think, and if, here's the deal: I found three articles that don't appear connected, but when I when I look at them in light of Jesus' statements from uh, John chapter eight, they become connected. Um, and, uh, and then, so there's three articles I'm going to take a look at today, but, uh, on top of it, we're going to do a, um, T.D. Jake's word of faith, uh, televangelist update. And, uh, you just, again, you know, take a look at the character and look at the teaching and look who this man hangs out with T.D. Jake's. And, uh, we're going to be listening to some stuff regarding his woman thou art loosed conference. Uh, you know, apparently loose women are, uh, <laughs> 
that's a play on words. And he, yeah, but uh, so he's all into loose, loosed women. And um, mm, yeah, this is his uh, women's conference that he does. He's done this for several years. And we're going to take a listen to uh, some of the promotional stuff that they have and then circle back and listen to one of the featured speakers who's going to be uh, at the upcoming Woman Thou Art Loosed conference, which is, I think, next week or the week, you know, maybe early the week after. But uh, uh, we're going to take a look at that. I got three articles. Like like I said, they, they, they don't appear connected, but they are connected when we look at them in light of um, what Jesus said in uh, John chapter 8. Your will is to do the will of your father. He's a liar from the beginning. When he lies, he speaks his native language, that kind of stuff. So, um, and, and and so we're going to begin with email, talk about the Loosed Women Conference, and uh, and then do these three articles, and kind of, and then I'm going to you know circle back and try to make the main point that I'm trying to make with all of these segments, uh, all these pieces uh, from uh, hour number one. And then in hour number two, uh, we're going to take a break from uh, from the heretical, uh, really bad, awful sermons, and we're going to be listening to a good sermon uh, preached by uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley uh, about how Jesus dispels doubt. You know, you've, there's people running around the landscape, you know, being postmodern and, you know, trying to embrace doubt as if that's synonymous with faith. Well... Uh, Pastor Charmley, using the biblical text from John chapter 20, will um, dispel the the myth that doubt is a big thing, uh, is a good thing. It's well, it's good in one sense. You'll you'll hear it in the sermon, but um, yeah, but uh, Jesus actually comes to dispel doubt, not to create it. So, um, so we got a lot of ground to cover on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, and I I just want to kind of get get at it, and so. Uh, that's what we're going to do, so let's dive into the program proper. Right, yeah, that's our, <clears throat> that's our email music here, and... Uh, I'm sure that everybody's sending me these uh, messages. That's exactly how they sound when they type. Okay, my uh, the first email uh, actually arrived in my Facebook uh, in my Facebook wall, and uh, so I know that the, I, I know that this gal is from. Uh, well, I don't know where she's from. Her name is Ellen. Ellen writes me, and uh, here's what she says. She says, uh, Chris, I. I I've been listening to your show, Fighting for the Faith, and I've started listening from the beginning, so I'm only uh, through November of 2008. So, <clears throat> it, it, you know what's funny is is that it actually always kind of surprises me when somebody you know, wants to take the time and go back through the archives and and uh, listen to the show and in, in you know by catching up on all the history. I you know I just never when I think of people doing that you know I think of like you know some great television shows like you know Twenty Four you know going back and watching the series from the beginning I, I personally I don't think of my own radio program in those terms anyway so it always kind of shocks me you know and of course I always love the emails that I get when somebody says hey I was uh, on a flight with my family down to Bermuda for you know a week for a week holiday <laughs> it's like. Yeah, so I get to travel along only in voice, never in body. But to... <laughs> sorry, it just <clears throat> did I mention it was a cold, rainy day here? And 
Indianapolis. Anyway, uh, he says, uh, so Ellen says, she says, I, I, I noticed that you said you read the Bible to your children. I started doing that too. My son is autistic and I have uh, and I, and not been able to bring him to church. He's now four. And since my husband and I are not both Christians, he has not been baptized. Still, I, I want him to hear the gospel, and he does not talk. I take his sister to church every Sunday. Okay, enough about that problem. So I started reading the Bible to my children at dinner. I read the lectionary uh, uh, reading three year. I thought it would be good to go through the whole Bible, so I started in Genesis and we're up to chapter 8. Then I decided to read the New Testament also. So we're in Matthew uh, chapter 2. I, I, I'm using the uh, the Bible Gateway NIV Reader's Edition, and uh, my children are 4 and 8. Okay, after all of that background, here's my real question. I read through the Bible myself, the uh, English Sanctified Version, and, I really, and I'm really wondering what I should actually read to my children. I mean, Leviticus numbers, oh my. <laughs> I was looking for guidance, and so uh, I just do the historic lectionary as there's children's Bible study or reading plan that you can recommend. At this point, I, I, I'm i thinking of reading Genesis and Exodus and skipping to the New Testament, but I, I'm i not sure that's the answer. What do you think? I certainly don't want to just do Bible stories. I really appreciate any advice that you could offer. Okay, so Ellen, he, he, here's this. Uh, this is, again, this is just advice from a father who's been doing this for years, and that is, is that um, what I have found is is that you know, especially keep in mind, you got the 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 spread between eight and four. Um, that that you know, there's a spread there. But to, here's the deal: is is that um, it's your job, you know, in this case, to teach them the whole counsel of the Word of God in, in the sense of teaching, walking through the whole Bible. But it gets challenging when you get into sections of Leviticus where the civil law is brought into play and things like that. And so what I found effective with younger children is to read through the historical narratives. And it's not just Genesis and Exodus. I mean, um, what you can do when you get to the sections in Deuteronomy and Numbers where um, it's the entire, you know, chapters, it's chapter after chapter after chapter of, um, of law what you can do in those cases is you can summarize and say, okay, um, you know, you know, we're going to skip chapters eight through uh, fourteen, but let me tell you what happens here. And in in there, God lays out um, uh, the rules, the laws of the land of Israel when the children of Israel get to the promised land, and this you, you explain it to them in, in terms that they can understand. This is the constitution that the ancient Israelites had. This was the document there that founded their nation and uh, basically laid down the rules as how they were to behave and act and what they were to do. And it also not only tells them what they were supposed to do, but also lays out the consequences of those. So you, what you want to do is you want to teach it conceptually and maybe even highlight particular concepts, uh, particular laws. So the idea there is is that it's going to be really hard for them to follow along, especially at a younger age, with all of the details. But don't for a second think that an 8, 9, or 10-year-old can't get all of this. And so uh, you know they, they, they actually uh, can get a lot more than you think. And so when you get to the, the, the part about the building of the tabernacle, you can summarize that because, you know, again, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of minutia and details and stuff like that. And you can point that out and say, listen, God, I mean, when he gave, when he gave the instructions on building the tabernacle, he really 
gave detailed, detailed instructions. He wanted it built a particular way and for things to look a particular way. And, and, and there's a reason for that. And you can then tie in, you know, uh, stuff that we, that has been revealed in the New Testament that the tabernacle is basically a copy of the, of the one that really truly exists in the heavenly kingdom. So the idea there is, is that, as you're working through those passages, you don't want to skip them. That's that's really not. It's you don't want to leave holes in the story because those are actually all key components to the overarching story. And uh, ultimately, your job is to walk them through all of that. So the idea is is that you're going to circle around these stories more than once. You're going to do it this year. You're going to do it the year after. You're going to do it again in another year. And so each time you go around it, the idea is is that you're going to start making the circle tighter and tighter and tighter with your children so that uh, they're hearing the stories, they're familiar with the stories, they understand the details of the story. And as they mature, then what happens is is that their depth of understanding of those stories and the details uh, start working them all of them into you know into their understanding of the biblical uh, of the of the Bible. Now, smart idea that you're you're doing here is uh, is uh, bringing in an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading at the same time. There's only one thing I would suggest adding on top of that, and that is as part of your daily routine there with your children, take a psalm. And start teaching them, you know, have, so I would start with a psalm, go to the Old Testament, and then go to the New Testament. And so the idea is, is that there's a comprehensive reading. And the thing is, is that the psalms really teach us how to pray. And so that, it, that it's not just poetry. I mean, in fact, the older I get, the more I become dependent on the psalms, I, which I never, I never really anticipated that thing in my life. But the more I study, the more I pray the psalms, the more, the more they become the bedrock, uh, uh, basically framing in uh, my prayer life and showing me, you know, that, uh, you know, how to pray in all of the tough circumstances of my life. When you, when you work your way through the Psalms, it's, it's actually pretty amazing. So the idea then is, is that work your way through these things. And this does, it's, it may, (laughs) in fact, I guarantee it's going to require you to read ahead and start thinking about how you're going to communicate some of the tougher sections in there. And where it really becomes interesting is start asking your children, even in the, you know, in in some of the, in the sections, where is Jesus in the story? Start teaching your children to find where Jesus is, and even in the Old Testament text. Because, uh, yeah, and by the way, I'll, I'll 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 give you the answer. It's really easy. <laughs> the uh, the the where Jesus is in all of those stories, he's you know that what you, those stories in the Old Testament are following a particular genetic, a human genetic line that begins in Adam and goes all the way to Christ. And so Jesus is in all of those stories, um, at least, you know, kind of hidden, if you would, uh, behind the scenes, not yet conceived in his ancestors. But over and again, you see, you see it in how God, and this is kind of the weird thing, even when God gives the Ten Commandments, it's, he's giving them, you know, it, it, you can all, you can make the cl- claim that because God has been gracious and rescued them and things like that, even that there's some grace even in the Ten Commandments. It's kind of an interesting way of looking at it, but there is. And so, uh, the idea then is that it's found in the interplay between law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And so when you, when you come to stories where, where God, 
you know, is offering forgiveness and calling somebody to repentance and they harden their heart. I mean, that's a terrible story. Point out the fact that that person, that Jesus Christ died for their sins and yet they're, they don't, you know, the, they're hardening their heart against repenting and, and being forgiven. And then, you know, I think of, you know, look, the parallel between Saul and King David is a great way to do that. But then, you know, the, some other stories are very, very easy to tell, uh, tell your children. And, uh, you know, for instance, uh, the, the opening chapters to the book of Daniel are very good. And then what you need to do then is summarize the, the prophecies as they're younger, but start to tease them and say, okay, this, this time around in the story, I'm just going to give you the gist of these prophecies. But there's some really neat detail in here that uh, as you get older, I want to start to unfold these things. So create the expectation with your children that as they grow older, you're going to help them see some of the deeper stuff in Scripture. That also buys you a little bit of time, by the way, to learn some of that deeper stuff yourself. Because one of the things you learn is, is that um, you know, teaching the Bible is literally the best way to learn the Bible. And, uh, and so, you know, just keep that in mind. But so the, the idea then is, is that don't skip over those sections, summarize them because they're important in the overall telling of the story and, um, weave into, you know, as part of your daily thing, bring in the Psalms and, um, and, uh, and then keep doing, uh, and then keep doing, uh, Old Testament and New Testament, and then one other thing, and that is, is that um, the uh, you, the New Testament you have you have the historical biographies, and then you have the uh, and then you have the, the epistles, which really lay out the theology of what was going on in those histo- in in the historical uh, you know actions of Jesus, and so. One of the things I find that helps, especially with younger kids, is that as you're working through the narratives, you know, uh, the four Gospels and the Book of Acts, pull in the sound doctrine and the in the uh, the theological interpretation of those events that are found in the epistles. That's a great thing to do, and and the it, and also depending on your kids' interests, um, the New Testament really opens itself up to be taught to children in a way that's very engaging and the reason why is because um you, you know a good a good map of the mediterranean um you know showing you know uh, or of the a map of israel showing the kids okay let's take a look now as we're reading through the gospel of matthew let's look at where jesus was when he preached this he it says he was here and so you can move jesus around the map if you would and you can do the same thing with the apostle paul on his missionary journeys and then uh, what you can do then also is is that uh, you know you know paul on one of his missionary journeys goes here and he plants a church and then you know later he writes a letter so then you can read the letter that paul wrote you know to the ephesians or the philippian churches so the idea is is that um t- teach the stories in such a way that they're grounded in history that there's there's an objective thing going on and when kids are younger they actually that's that's stuff that's you know that they're really open to and helps draw them into the stories in a way that is memorable. And it, it, it the important part about it then is, is that it makes it so that in their mind, Christian, Christian doctrine isn't, isn't ripped apart from or separated from the actual historical events. So uh, th- those are just some ideas, uh, you know, having been around that block. So thank you for the email, Ellen, and I hope that helps. Okay. Moving along here. Okay, I got an email from a gentleman by the name of Mike. And I'm not sure, uh, well, uh, what town Mike is from. But Mike writes, 
regarding uh, uh, Mark Driscoll's appearance at uh, Doug Wilson's church and being interviewed by Doug Wilson. And I was kind of hoping I would get a reformed guy to uh, send me an email to discuss this because I got to tell you, um, I'm not totally up to speed on the whole federal vision controversy that's running through the uh, the reform camp. I basically know that it, what I've read is is that uh, there there's a, a bizarre you know, disconnecting of the active and passive obedience of Christ, which ultimately leads to a justification scheme, this justification by works in the federal vision. So um, that being the case, but I, I want to talk about this, and I'll play I'll play a brief video of uh, Doug Wilson that I was able to find, where he um he, well let's just say he says some things that are interesting. But um, Mike writes, he says, "Dear Chris, uh, having watched the video between Doug Wilson and Mark Driscoll, I suspect that the deeper issue hasn't yet been pointed out, and I hope you will bear with me through a little bit of backstory." I was raised in the independent KJV-only crowd, joined the army at 18, and converted to Islam the same year. <laughs> Work with me on this email. This is a great email. So we got a guy who was, who was raised in the independent fundamentalist Baptist KJV-only culture and churches, and, and at 18, he converted to Islam. Listen to this. After years of dealing with the IFB crowd, Allah seemed like a much nicer God than the one that they were screaming about. But 9-11 and my subsequent deplo deployment to Afghanistan shook me to my very core, and I came home from Afghanistan in 2002 a bitter, angry ex-soldier without a shred of faith in God left. I would providentially meet an old friend from high school who took me to hang out at a local coffee shop. It was also a um, mission church for the ELCA. The pastor there uh, became a friend, and before I knew what had happened, I was reading Romans, namely uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 4, when God was pleased to take away my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh from that point forward. I became a, a voracious reader of all things theological. After reading Luther's Bondage of the Will, I wound up tilting over into the Reformed camp. Yes, I blame Luther for the fact that I'm a Calvinist. <laughs> uh, Mike, let me just say this. Um, um, my mentor, Dr. Rosenblatt, he... he um, from time to time, he speaks kind of disparagingly about Luther's Bondage of the Will, and uh, his statement is, is that, in that book... Luther out Calvin's Calvin. <laughs> Great. So we have uh, we have Luther to blame for you becoming a Calvinist. Okay, he says, at approximately the same time, I also found Mark Driscoll's podcast on iTunes, actually while looking for Rob Bell's podcast. <laughs> I was immediately hooked. I listened to every podcast available while falling asleep each night and was entranced with Driscoll's preaching. I devoured everything Driscoll for at least three years. But after a while, I started to see problems. The recognition of his church straight out of the seeker-driven hostile takeover manual and his somewhat confused take on the charismatic gifts. Eventually, I would find myself identifying with the old Calvinist crowd that Mark... Pastor Mark seems to think so little of. 
And it was through this self-identification that I stumbled over Doug Wilson and the federal vision controversy within the Reformed world. The first warning to me was the discovery that Wilson has zero formal theological training, at least to my knowledge. The second warning was discovering from reading Wilson firsthand that he blurs the distinction between law and gospel. Yes, he does. He says, then I would find that his understanding of justification flies in the face of the Reformation, teaching much like the NPP, a doctrine of corporate justification and arguing that ever since Luther, the forensic concept of justification has been overemphasized uh, within the Protestant world. By the way, NPP uh, you know, is the new perspectives on Paul. Sorry, I should have said that. So uh, just the federal vision, much like the um, new perspectives on Paul, uh, has a corporate concept of justification. Yes, it do. Anyway, the question I've yet to hear asked in this dust-up is, what in the world is Mark Driscoll doing sharing a stage with a pastor who hasn't fully crossed the Tiber River? Uh-huh. Yeah, talking about uh, Rome there. And is subtly leading men back towards Rome. While Mark's straw men regarding the charismata are troublesome, what is more troublesome is the fact that he apparently has just as much of a problem sharing the stage with a man who denies justification, sola fide, and blurs the law-gospel distinction, as James MacDonald does, sharing the stage with a Sabalian modalist. Thank you for your time, Chris. Um, and this is from Mike. I don't know which town Mike is from, but, you know, he's asking the right question. So I, yeah, after receiving his email, I did a little bit of research. And I just want you to hear Doug Wilson from a, a video uh, that you that um, is available at uh, federal-vision.com, and um, Doug Wilson talking about the, the one of the main teachers of the Federal Vision, Norman Shepard, and his view regarding justification. You won't need to listen hard because the uh, the problem becomes apparent right away. Here we go, Pastor Wilson. Can you relate Norman Shepard's views on justification to Reformed Orthodoxy? Yeah, yeah, I'll do that. I'll, let me mention two things. One is uh, Norman Shepard denies the um, imputation of the act of obedience of Christ. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, so Doug Wilson, who is what part of the Federal Vision crowd, and by the way, not every doctrine within the Federal Vision is off. That, Of course, I'm coming at this as a Lutheran. Um, but here's the deal. I don't care what somebody has right if they've got justification wrong. Um, so if the, you know, one of the major teachers, one of the major central teachers of the federal vision uh, doctrine denies that Christ's active obedience is imputed to us, uh, well, then... We've got a big problem because that's the beginning of the end right there as far as the doctrine of justification. That I mean, that just undoes the whole thing. If Christ's active and passive obedience are not imputed to you, 
only his passive obedience, and that basically means Jesus' passive obedience, by the way, is, is his sufferings and death, where that he passively suffered uh, at the hands of the Romans while he was being crucified. His active obedience is his active obedience to the law, he, Christ being sinless. So uh, the you know so this is Doug Wilson, the guy who interviewed uh, Mark Driscoll, basically saying right on. I mean, we're just 18 seconds into this talking about the federal vision, and um, and we can say that the uh, one of the main guys in the group denies that Christ's active obedience is imputed to us. Well, that leaves you with a big problem because uh, at that point it creates a scheme that's very similar to the Roman concept of justification. That um, you know that God infuses you with grace, gets you going, but it's your active obedience that keeps you in the faith. Um, I don't care how you slice it; that's justification by your works, flat out, plain and simple. And um, and so, yeah, uh, like I said, I don't care what other doctrines you get right after that. Um, you, you can believe in the Trinity. You can believe, you can have a right understanding of Christ and his incarnation and his deity. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, you, it doesn't matter at this point what you get right. You get this one wrong, you've, you've biffed the central doctrine of Christianity. And, uh, I don't, you know, I don't care what kind of mental or uh, semantical gymnastics you do after this. Uh, the only conclusion that I can come up with is that this, like the new perspectives on Paul, like Mike point, rightly pointed out, is a scheme of justification by works. So, yeah. So, uh, Mike, Mike, thank you for asking the right question. The right question being, why was Driscoll at um, Doug Wilson's church and Doug Wilson being one of the you know, main faces of the um, federal vision. Hmm. Yeah, we've got some problems. Anyway, we're up on our first break. If you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. 
Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, if your pastor is teaching that Christ's active obedience is not imputed to you, run, run. That pastor's not teaching you the truth. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see two friendly yellow buttons right there in the middle of the page, and they occur several times. As you scroll down, you'll see each episode, I've got the two yellow buttons appearing. And so the idea here is is that we don't charge people to go into our archives. We don't charge people to download Fighting for the Faith. Um, you know, and I, I, I feel strongly, very, very strongly that that would be the wrong way of approaching this. And I, you know, it, and so as a result of it, I want to make them available for free for download. And with the idea that uh, after people have been listening for a while, they'll be convinced, yeah, this is something worth promoting so that other people can listen and, you know, you get what I'm saying. So, so here's the deal. I know how many of you all are listening to this episode of Fighting for the Faith. How do I know? Well, I'm not a prophet, but I, I know because I can look at the download stats. So here's the deal. When we crunch the numbers, okay, you know, you sit down with a calculator and go, yes, those numbers, that number, and then divide by this and multiply by that. Here's what we learn is that um, the vast majority of listeners to Fighting for the Faith do not financially support fighting for the faith <sighs> so uh, <clears throat> those of you who have been listening and not supporting um uh, may i may i strongly 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 admonish you and and and, and cajole you and well, i'm not going i'm not going to promise blessings or anything like that no but here's the deal the, the the number of people who listen and support us uh, those are two very different numbers and so uh, the reality is is that we, it, in order for us to keep growing the way we're growing and we're growing literally our audience size multi, it grows by between you know about 9 to 12% a month which means flat out that literally means that Every month, our expenses increase by about that same amount because of all the different licensing fees and uh, fees that go with downloading and servers and, and all that kind of stuff. So um, if you're not already supporting Fighting for the Faith, please, please, please do so. And so, you know, we've we've got a couple of different ways that you can support us. And, and the idea is, is that uh, I, I'm a firm believer that 
um, a, a little bit spread across a lot of people goes a long way. That's that's the, the thing I really believe in. And so the idea here is, is that uh, visit our website, click on one of the friendly yellow buttons, the one that says join our crew. What you're doing is signing up to automatically contribute just $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith. It's not a lot of money, at least for you, the end user, but it means a lot to us because the more people that do that, then what happens is is it creates a baseline financially that we can then use to budget our expenses month to month and and things of that nature. And uh, but of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution and specify the amount, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box five zero eight. Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. Okay, now just a warning ahead of time. I'm going to go long in the first hour, and uh, I'm I'm taking advantage of the fact that Pastor Charmley's sermon is not very long, and um, and also kind of the thing that um, I don't have to correct Pastor Charmley. <laughs> so, you know, it's so anyway you you get what i'm saying so uh, so here's the deal um there there's four things that we're going to that we're going to take a look at in the you know in this next segment however long it goes and we're going to begin with uh looking at the uh at the upcoming TD Jake's women's conference entitled woman thou art loosed and then we're going to segue from that into three different articles that on the surface may not seem connected but in reality, they are, well, they're really connected, like really, really connected. And ultimately, I'm, I'm, I want to make a point, okay? And, uh, and so, you know, stick through all of this, uh, you know, to, especially to the point where I kind of make my point. Because I'm trying to make a point, but I, rather than just making it and saying, okay, so here's the deal, uh, here's my point. I, I want you to think along with me. From time to time, I, I do these things called think-alongs. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do a think-along. Now, that, that requires me to lay the groundwork for our think-along by taking us back to the Gospel of John, Chapter 8. The Gospel of John, Chapter 8. I'm going to uh, pick this up uh, about verse 31. Okay, so verse 31 of John chapter 8, I'm going to read for a little bit. This this will be the first bookend of our of, of this segment and our discussion. So here's the first bookend. Uh, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So they answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham, and, you've, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin, and the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Now, this kind of this is the, this is like the first verse I really want you to you know pay attention to here. What Jesus is saying here doesn't just apply to the people he was speaking to. Listen to this. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Okay. We're going to come back to this concept, okay, here in, in, in a little bit. So, you know, you, if you were to expand this out, here's the deal. People who don't 
religious people who don't trust Christ, who are really not brought to repentance and the forgiveness of sins, they seek to kill Jesus. And since he's not around for them to crucify right now, the way they kill Jesus, the way this plays out in what they do, is they don't preach him. They don't abide in his word. They don't exalt him. They don't point people to him. They point people to other things. So you know, so Jesus says, I know that you are, uh, you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, well, if Abraham... If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to the, him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from the father and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. So uh, next kind of thing. If if these people truly, um, if God were truly their father, they would love Christ. So they seek, So these people seek to kill Jesus, and they don't love Christ. Now the way this plays out again, um, people who truly don't love Jesus, they don't want, they don't preach Jesus. They don't point people to Jesus. Okay. And they don't love Jesus because if they did, they'd constantly be talking about Jesus and what he's done. Okay. Why do you not understand what I say, Jesus said, verse 43. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him when he lies he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and a father of lies but because I tell you the truth you do not believe me so that's going to be our that's going to be our bookend now um thank you for the uh, suggestions that I've been receiving over the past few uh, few days uh, regarding uh, when I do a word of faith uh, tele-evangelist update, we have we have settled on music that we'll be using for this into the future. And uh, with that, I have to use this because we're going to be doing a T.D. Jakes update, and he's part of that uh, TBN word of faith crowd. So here we go. Play this man sitting here doing the white man overbite. 
doing the Muppet dance in my office chair. Gratuitous on my part. I apologize. Love the bass line. Enough of that. Okay. <laughs> I think that makes the point. So, uh, yeah, if we're going to be steering into a discussion of uh, T.D. Jakes. Well, T.D. Jakes has an upcoming conference. The Woman Thou Art Loosed. So this is the Loosed Woman Conference. It's going to be at the Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. Um, hmm, that, would that be Joel Osteen's? Uh, yeah, that would be. Anyway, and uh, the folks that he be bringing in is, uh, well, just, um, hmm, hmm. Let, let me give you some uh, examples here. And I th- th- so what I thought I would do is would, well, play some audio from some of the videos that uh, from their website that uh, explain who is going to be speaking at the Women Thou Art Loosed conference that T.D. Jakes is holding there at um, Joel Osteen's church. Um, and we'll begin with, uh, well, one we all know and love, and that would be Dr. Cindy Trim. Ladies, get ready. Woman Thou Art Loose is right around the corner, and you can't afford to miss this life-changing event. This is the third time that I've been invited to Woman Thou Art Loose, and let me say how blessed I actually am. What- That's right. I- I'm sure that you're going to be telling everybody there about the things that are happening in the intergalactic realm. One of the things that I appreciate about what Bishop has been offering for o- almost 20 years is hope. And this is what we need. If there's ever a time that we need hope, it's now. I believe that God is raising up women in this generation with fresh anointings. We need... Mm, you believe that God's raising up women with fresh anointings. Fresh. Uh, yeah, I don't even know what that means. Leaders. We need those women like Ruth who are able to say, I know who I am, like Esther, to be able to say, I'm here and I've come for such a time as this. Let's get together in Houston. So we're looking for the next fresh anointings of Ruth's and Esther's. That's complete missing the point of both of those stories. And have a great time in the Lord. I'm encouraging you. Call your mother, your auntie, your sister. And tell them to avoid this thing like the plague. Bring your nieces, bring your daughters, and meet me at Woman Thou Art Loose. Don't miss Yeah, okay, so uh, Woman woman Thou Art Loose, we got uh, Dr. Cindy Trim, and also this one. Ladies, Woman Thou Art Loose is right around the corner. Don't miss your chance to be blessed by an incredible group of speakers, including Pastor Paula White. It is a clarion call. Pastor Paula White. 
The Bible knows nothing of female pastors. In fact, this is actually forbidden. But let's continue. For you to come to Houston, Texas for Woman Thou Art Loose, October 20th through the 22nd, I'll be ministering along with Bishop Jakes and a host of others. I'll be opening behind the veil, allowing you to go into the inner chambers and see. Paula, how did you... Uh, you're going to be opening behind the veil and go into the inner chamber? What are you talking about? Make it through that. What did God say? How can you help me? Save your spot for Woman Thou Art Loose. Make sure you register today. I'm calling you to your purpose and in position October 23rd. You're calling them to their purpose. Uh-huh. Okay, so that's, that's well, two people we should have expected. I mean, after all, they did appear with her uh, on the uh, recent appearance of T.D. Jakes on the Trinity Broadcasting Network's um, Praise the Lord program. But then here's, uh, well, somebody I'd never really known too much about until very recently, and this is Pastrix. Uh, Cheryl Brady, listen to this. Don't miss Woman Thou Art Loosed, featuring Pastor Cheryl Brady. What some people get easy, other people have to pray for. Yeah, that would be her supposedly speaking in tongues. That that if you got a past tricks, number one, that's like a total you know run. You shouldn't be in that building. Quick, you're not going to hear about Jesus for real. Um, and then somebody's uh, supposedly speaking gibberish on stage. Run. Other people have to labor for. And so because of that, when you come to church, you've already had church on the outside. So it's nothing for you to come in here and have church on the inside. Hearing anything about Jesus here? You come in with tears rolling down your face, and people look at you like you're crazy, like you've lost your mind. Somebody, you're embarrassing somebody. Somebody is ashamed of you. But you know what? That don't bother people like us, because I don't expect you to understand my praise, because you don't understand my problem. Yeah, I don't understand nothing that you're saying, because none of it isn't even found in the Bible. Um, have you heard of Jesus? I'm just curious. But if you ask understood my story you would understand my... now those of you who've never seen Pastrix Cheryl Brady um she's white just want to let you all know come to woman thou art loosed where we're facing forward towards greater life mm -hmm. facing forward towards greater life so I you know just want you know the last time we talked about TD Jakes and his appearance with <clears throat> Pastrix Paula White and Dr. Intergalactic Cindy Trim. Um, uh, you know, we didn't get to take a listen to, um, well, Cheryl Brady. So I thought I would spend a little bit of time letting Cheryl Brady do some, well, preaching of some kind. Here, see if, uh, if you hear anything about Jesus and what he's done for us in this little snippet from, um, uh, Cheryl Brady. Here we go. Yeah, that was her speaking gibberish. One of the greatest awakenings that I have ever experienced in my life is when I began to hear and somewhat understand the message of purpose. Purpose is a powerful thing. It's powerful because purpose is the meaning to life and without it life has no meaning it's powerful because 
The Bible says that all things work together for the good, not for everybody, but it works together for the good for those who, number one, love the Lord, and number two, those that are called according to purpose. Now, his purpose. Purpose is powerful because it will lead you into a healthy contentment because I cease to be jealous of you when I understand my purpose. It is powerful. It is a powerful thing. And discovering it is is equally as powerful because everything you will ever need in life. You know, I just wonder every time, if, if every time she says the word purpose, if she has to pay a royalty to Rick Warren. It's locked up in your purpose. My joy is in my purpose. My peace is in my purpose. It's not in Christ. It's apparently in your purpose. Your joy and your peace are in your purpose, not in Jesus. Now, I, I'm going to come back to the passage that I was reading from because... You know, I'm trying to build a point here, okay? And uh, and so let me let me again read John 8:37. I know I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Um, you know, I'm just, you know, whose offspring is this woman? Is she really a child of God? Uh, well, if she were, then why would she be preaching and why would she be a pastrix? And if she really were a child of God, she'd love Christ, and she'd be preaching about him. But she's not. We continue. My prosperity is locked up in my purpose, so discovering it is very powerful. And oh, yeah, I'm sure. Very powerful for your pocketbook. Um, yeah, if your prosperity is in your purpose. And it's powerful because everything that we do outside of the purpose of God for our life is a huge waste of time and effort and strength. And if you're like me, I don't have any time and I don't have any effort and I don't have any strength going after things that don't belong to me. Mm, that's weird that you would say that because uh, the pastoral office doesn't belong to you. How is it possible that you think that your purpose is in the pastoral office? That's, yeah, that's a couple times in a row now. I pulled off some pretty cool alliteration. Anyway, um, yeah, um, so yeah, Pastrix, Cheryl, Brady, um, yeah, we got some problems here. If it does not belong to me, somebody love me enough to say, hey, you're going in the wrong direction. Because I don't want to waste my time. Time is precious. I don't want to reach for all of these options that life hands to me only at the end of the day to understand that I don't have any fulfillment. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint to pursue the purpose of God in my life. Now, that's a weird phrase. Have you heard that one before? Set your face like a flint. Well, that's actually taken from the scripture. And uh, that's, uh, I think it's from the Gospel of Luke. I may be wrong on there, but it's from one of the Gospels where it talks about Jesus finally making a journey to Jerusalem. He set his face like flint to go to the cross. Well, apparently Cheryl Brady, just like Jesus, has set her face like flint to discover her purpose. And of course, there's prosperity wrapped up in that too. Show neighbor, tell him I'm pursuing purpose. And may I tell you that you are not the only one that is pursuing it. I took uh, my computer on Saturday and I went to Amazon.com and I just typed in uh, books that deal with purpose. And it shot up and it told me that they had 94,015 books dealing with purpose. I would say that people are writing them because people are reading them and they're buying them. And the reason that they are buying them is because they 
they are longing for fulfillment and real fulfillment is only found in our purpose not just not in Christ but in our purpose believers but non-believers alike are all in search of purpose now our terminology might be different and our approach might be different but our goal is basically the same we have all been put on earth for a reason and every last one of us that has any good sense at all wants to know exactly what is the reason God that I am here and as a result the search is on because people are hungry for understanding people are hungry for knowledge which is not a bad thing because the Bible said that my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge the bottom mm -hmm. just quoting a verse out of context Huh. The line is that thank the Lord the 21st century church is finally waking up and we have begun to realize that we are called to do more than just shout and more than just dance but we are called according to purpose we are called to possess the land we we're called the what we are called to take dominion touch uh oh <laughs> I should have played pinky in the brain. Somebody and tell him you better pursue purpose. We are called to rule and we are called to reign. We are called to blow the trumpet in Zion and to sound the alarm in his holy mountain. And, and, and I am for one, I am so excited because the church as we have known it over the last many, many, many years. Now here comes an attack against the church as we've known it has wonderfully and is wonderfully going through a facelift because for years the church has been the last thing to update yeah it's it's time to update the church you got to get rid of that you know preaching about Jesus and his shed blood on the cross and repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So now the church is going to have an update installing new software, Satan 1.0. We continue. Y'all know I'm telling the truth. I said the church, you would be surprised to know just how many churches, I know you're sitting in an awesome sanctuary tonight, but you would be surprised to know just how many churches are operating on outdated equipment. Mm-hmm, yeah, you know, like the Bible. Outdated office equipment, outdated phones, outdated microphones, outdated sound systems, outdated musical instruments. And outdated gospel. Outdated everything. And it blows my mind that people would go to a place uh, five days a week that they work that has uh, uh, everything that's up to date. But on Sunday, they will slip into a church that has nothing up to date. And why people do that, it is beyond me. And mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's because the poor churches with the pastors who don't make the big bling bling, uh, they're the ones faithfully proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins, which is a message that is foolishness to the world. We continue. We will update our wardrobes. Somebody say thank you, Jesus. 
We update our hairstyles. We update our cars. We update our furniture. We update our appliances. We update our electronics. But when you start talking about updating the church, folk get nervous and they act. Yeah, because then they end up with people like you. With big stages and auditoriums and big screen, you know, big screens with big, you know, camera equipment projecting the images on there. And, and yeah, it's all very entertaining and sure is, you know, some major eye candy, I'm sure. But the message of Jesus seems to disappear completely. Hmm. This and they act like it is taboo or something, but I, for one, am not interested in being in a church that is outdated. Do you, yeah, of course, you like a church you know that follows the biblical rules regarding women pastors? Understand that time is ticking and things are changing and life is moving, and I want to be a part of something that is on the move because where there is movement, there is life. I said, Where there is movement, there is life. Touch somebody and tell him the church is on the move. Yeah, on the highway to hell, they're right on the move, all right. So, I mean, this is the kind of woman that um, T.D. Jinks wants to uh, have featured at his women's conference. Two pastrixes, Pastrix Paula White, Pastrix Cheryl Brady. And um, it's pretty clear based on what she's teaching that she is hostile, not neutral. Uh, she is not Switzerland here. She is hostile to the historic Christian church. Which kind of, you know, let me make my kind of, I'm going to continue making my point here. Jesus says, um, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. If you were, if you, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I have come not of my own accord, but he sent me. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Point something out here. In the church, nobody gets to play the role of Switzerland. Nobody. You are either truly a child of God or you are a child of the devil. There is no middle ground. And if you are of your father the devil, not God, then your will will be to do your father's will, and that is to lie. Let me keep building this up here. So, all right, so that's, uh, that's you know, our update there regarding T.D. Jakes, but all of this is, I'm stringing these together in a theme, okay? The next one here, I'm actually, I've got to do this because, you know, it's, it's part of my tradition here at uh, Fighting for the Faith, but uh, here... So we got three articles that don't appear connected but are. The first one, Christians should seek to be a change agent. Modern day Moses, says author from the Christian Post. This is by Arlay Coleman. Uh, the, uh, the, here's how this article reads. So the headline is Christians should seek to be change agents. Modern day Moses, says author. Christians and churches are busying themselves condemning gay marriage, corrupt politicians, and legalized abortion when they should instead to seek instead seek to change the hearts of Americans first 
rather than just their behavior, says author Oss Hillman. In his new book, Change Agent, Engaging Your Passion to Be the One Who Makes a Difference, Hillman points out that the Christian message today has been shut out because of the way that we deliver it, not because of the message itself is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, is contradicted flat out by what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians um, 1 and 2. In fact, if you have your Bible, let's let's do a little bit of, of uh, textual work here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and, uh, and uh, I'm going to kind of straddle 1 and 2 here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us, who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews, and it's folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your, your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of him, because of him you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power that your faith may not rest on w the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So let me come back to this, okay? Yeah, we hear this all the time. Everyone needs to be a world changer, a change agent. And, ev and ev you know, always, always, always the people who are apparently at fault for the lack of growth in the Christian church, well, it's Christians. And, and it's because of their mean attitude and, 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 and stuff like that. But so, again, listen to this. So in his new book, Change Agent, Engaging Your Passion to Be the One Who Makes a Difference, Hillman points out that the Christian message today has been shut out because of the way we deliver it. That's absolutely false. The reason why the Christian message is shut out today, just like it's been shut out in the past, is because everybody by nature is dead in trespasses and sins, and as Jesus said, is born uh, of their father, the devil, and they cannot stand his word. It's foolishness. 
foolishness, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. It's not because of Christians. Now, granted, there are some Christians out there who've done some pretty silly, stupid things, okay? But the reality is, is that those folks who are doing the silly, stupid things in the name of Jesus are not preaching the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. In order to understand how God grows his church, number one rule is, is that Nothing in the message needs to be modified. The, mo- the the gospel has to be proclaimed and preached in its purity. Anyway, we continue. So Hillman points out that the Christian message today has been shut out because of the way we deliver it, not because the message itself is wrong. Hillman, who is president of the Marketplace Leaders, maintains that Christians today must be change agents, which is a person who is a positive catalyst of influence and solves mankind's problems. He said he said he wrote change agent because of the fast pace our nation's culture has become corrupt and embraces moral relativism. Yeah, I think that 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 the reason why the culture has gone to hell in a handbasket so quickly is because the church has stopped preaching the gospel, the foolishness of Christ. Yeah, you get what I'm saying here? Anyways, he says, Jesus solved people's problems, which resulted in greater influence in people's lives. People follow him because of his example, said Hillman to the Christian Post. I, you know, again, this is just absolute folly. Jesus was not the ultimate problem solver. And, it, you know, read John chapter 6, the, the great church shrinkage program. If Jesus was all about solving problems in order to have greater influence, then why is it then when he preached the hard truths that the great crowd left him? So okay, so there okay, so I'm kind of weaving this all together. Okay, so we have we have the woman thou art loosed folks and T D Jakes and his crowd. We've got this well meaning guy um, you know, Os Hillman, who couldn't be farther from the truth, basically blaming Christians, uh, you know, and their negative attitude and not being world changers for the reason why the church is 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 not succeeding and why the culture is going out in moral relativism, and uh, and then to add to the mix, we've got this again. These are these these three articles don't look like they're connected, but they really are. Um, we've got an article written by John Shore, uh, who writes for the Huffington Post. The headline reads, Meet Scott Anderson, soon to be the first openly gay minister ordained by the Presbyterian Church USA. Quote, Our pastor is gay. Our pastor is gay. How can we possibly continue being Christians now? Okay, fine. I don't actually know what uh, what the people said to their fellow parishioners at Bethany Presbyterian when, in the spring of 1990, they decided to out their head pastor, Scott Anderson. But they did out Mr. Anderson, who, as a result, did feel compelled to leave the Sacramento church he'd been serving since 1987, a church he had served so well that soon after he departed from it, for instance, Bethany received the Presbyterian General Assembly Ecumenical Service Award for its outstanding collaborative work in meeting the needs of people throughout the Sacramento area. Awesome pastor, no problem. Gay awesome pastor, problem. Indeed, Anderson was pushed out of the closet and straight into the unemployment line. Getting outed at Bethany was was both the best and the worst moment of my life, he said. 
Um, Anderson said this to me over the phone. On the one hand, it was freeing and empowering to finally be honest about the truth of who I am. On the other hand, it forced me to step away from my passion. The gay issue had never been part of my ministry at Bethany. It hadn't played any role at all in our conversations there. When out of the blue, it became the controversy. I thought it best if I voluntarily resigned from Bethany. I didn't want to, the, uh, the tumult caused by my staying to ultimately prove disruptive to the life of the church. So anyway, so the the story then goes on to explain how this guy is going to be the first openly homosexually ordained minister within the Presbyterian Church USA. And you say, how is that even possible, you know, to hear that there's a church out there doing such a thing? Let me come back to the passage we've been looking at. Romans chapter, uh, not Romans, John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Let me read again because you know, I'm trying to build something out here. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. By the way, um, that openly gay pastor, he wasn't made gay. That's not who he is. He was created male. He's a man. That's what he objectively is. He rejects what he objectively is and somehow through his experience thinks that he's something different than what God made him to be objectively. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Jesus answered, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father, that your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God. And I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth. He has nothing to do with with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of, of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Next article, and the last one. The name of the article is uh, Amusing the Goats or Calling the Sheep. This is by Mike Riccardi of the Cripplegate blog. You can find this at thecripplegate.com. The name of it, again, is Amusing the Goats or Calling the Sheep. Now, 
just just as a I'll I'll just make this as a as a caveat here. Uh, Mike Riccardi is reformed. I'm a Lutheran. Okay, the reformed and Lutherans have different understandings of the doctrine of election. Okay. Plain and simple, there are some very distinct differences in that. As a result of it, you're going to hear a man arguing the reformed position regarding election, and I'm not going to challenge it because that's not what this particular program is about. This isn't about exploring the differences between the Lutheran view of election and the Calvinist view. Suffice it to say, though, he's making a point here that needs to be listened to whether you are a Lutheran or a Calvinist, okay? If you're if you're a Christian, so amusing the goats are calling the sheep by Mark by Mike Riccardi. He quotes Second Corinthians four three, and even if our gospel it is is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In Second Corinthians, Paul writes primarily to defend his own apostleship against certain men whom he later dubbed false apostles. See Second Corinthians eleven. Verse 13, these men were teaching that Paul was not a true apostle and were advancing many attacks against both his character and his ministry to the point that the Corinthians began to doubt Paul and thus doubt the gospel he preached. For example, these false apostles accused Paul of being under God's judgment because of his constant sufferings. The thought was that if Paul was really sent from Christ, He wouldn't have such opposition and turmoil, but rather that God would bless him. And so in 2 Corinthians 1, 3-11, Paul defends himself by saying that his sufferings for the gospel are actually a mark of God's favor. Far from discrediting him as an apostle, sufferings are a badge of his authenticity as a minister of Christ. They also accused him of vacillating and, and purposing according to the flesh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 17 because he had changed his plans about coming to Corinth and so in 2 Corinthians 1 15 through 24 he defends himself by saying his word to the Corinthians is not yes and no but yes just as as all of God's promises are yes in Christ another accusation that he was uncredentialed a sort of Johnny come lately apostle not part of the original 12. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, he asks the Corinthians, do we need letters of commendation to you? You are, are our letter of commendation. The fact that you know Christ because of the gospel we preach to you is evidence of our authenticity. In chapter 4, we find another accusation uh, was that his message was obscure. And that's a substantial accusation because the Corinthian culture praised human wisdom, cleverness of speech, and oratorical persuasion. They regarded highly those who were skilled in rhetoric and oratory and looked down on those who weren't. And so these men were saying, hey, look, Paul, only a few people are believing your message. If it was true and you were really sent from Christ, more people would believe. Sounds a bit like today, doesn't it? If God was really blessing you, you'd have more people in your church. In if you really had sound doctrine, if the sound doctrine were real, if it really mattered, more people would believe. What's so interesting to me is how extremely instructive Paul's response to this accusation is for how the church can be faith can be a faithful witness of Christ in our various spheres of life. He tells the false apostles, quote, 
you don't understand the doctrine of election. It may be that our gospel is veiled, that is, that is granted that there are many who do not believe our message, but our gospel is veiled only to those who are perishing. He says similar things in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing to the one, uh, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to, to life. Paul likens preaching, the preaching of the gospel to the emission of aroma that finds its way into the nostrils of all people. And among those who hear the gospel, there are two kinds of people. Those who are being saved, those who are perishing. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, Paul says, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God for salvation. And so when the elect of God smell the fragrance of the gospel, it is to them an aroma of life that leads to life. But when the non-elect hear it, it's an aroma of death that leads to death because the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Christ himself said the same thing to the Jews in John chapter 10, verses 26 through 27. He said, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. But you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. Get that? Not, you are not my sheep because you don't believe, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. You are not of those the Father has given to me. See John chapter 6, verses 37 through 39. And so Paul's defense against the accusation that not enough people are believing his message is simple. The church's purpose in evangelism and in all facets of gospel ministry is to call Christ sheep, not the goats, into the fold. You shouldn't expect the goats to believe the gospel. Only the sheep hear the shepherd's voice. Consider the implications this doctrine has for our ministry of the gospel, for the way we do church. If we continue to take the unadulterated biblical gospel to the world and they continue to reject it, that is not a sign of the weakness of the message. It is not even necessarily a sign of the weakness of the messenger. Rather, it is the outworking of God's purpose to redeem a particular people, those sheep whom the Father has given to the Son. And so if we have taken the biblical gospel to our neighbors and our co-workers and our communities with the patience and compassion of Jesus, and they seem uninterested, we should not conclude that we need to grow a soul patch start playing secular rock songs, having light shows, performing skits, playing video and videos in church to attract them. I would even add to that, uh, having a rodeo or a fireworks show inside the congregation. The church is not called to amuse the goats. Our task is to sound as clearly as we can the shepherd's voice in the gospel message and call his sheep who know that his know his voice into his fold. It is the call of the shepherd's voice that is the means by which Christ's flock is brought into his fold. A stranger they simply will not follow, but they will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. So why would we adopt a ministry methodology other than sounding forth the shepherd's voice in the preaching of his word? Why would we implement something else, something that scripture promises will not attract Christ's sheep, but will attract the goats. Perhaps it is because we failed to understand the implications of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, which says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
And so a principle for faithful gospel ministry that Paul gives Christ's church in this text is success in gospel ministry is measured not by numbers but by faithfulness to the message. Therefore, in what seems like seasons of external failure, we must not ask what offers the greatest appeal and what will fill the most seats or what will have the greatest influence. We must instead ask, have we gotten the gospel right? Are we preaching the message we received? Are we sounding forth the voice of the great shepherd or instead the voice of a stranger? Great question. Great article by Mike Riccardi, too. Um, and, you know, obviously he's working from a reformed understanding of election, but he's right about this. It, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We're called to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And God is the one who takes people and brings them to repentance and gives them faith and trust in Christ. God is the one who regenerates people through the proclamation of the gospel. That being the case... Um, if people reject it, we need to do what Jesus said to do. Shake the dust from your feet and move along. And those whom God calls, he will regenerate through the faithful preaching of his word. Now, this comes back now. We've read all three of the different articles. The one regarding the openly gay minister, uh, the uh, the one about Christians should seek to be change agents, and we've also read the Cripplegate um, article on uh, you know basically preaching the um, not not amusing goats, but uh, you know feeding God's sheep or calling the sheep. And now I want to come back and make my final point. And this is and I've been building to this. And here's the idea, folks: when it comes to people who are in the pulpit. They are either agents of the devil or they are faithful shepherds of God. And you can tell by what they preach. If they are not constantly pointing you to Christ and what he has done for you, If there is no clarion sound call of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, but the, instead they preach the silliness and nonsense of the intergalactic Cindy Trim or the weird ideas of Pastrix Paula White or, or attack the historic Christian church like Cheryl Brady, then they tip their hand and show you what they really are. They are of their father, the devil. If they refuse to hear God's word and abide in the word of Christ and instead turn the gospel into license for homosexuality, well, then they're not shepherds. They are agents of their father, the devil. Because how do we know this? Because they're lying about God. And this is what Jesus said. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has 
nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. So you wonder why so many of these pastors that we review their sermons here at Fighting for the Faith and we do all these weird segments of people that are just off on these bizarre tangents saying the most ridiculous things but never, never rightly handling God's word, preaching the truth and proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins and repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Why is that? Because they are of their father, the devil, and they cannot bear to hear the word of Christ. And they're doing the will of their father, the devil, and he's a liar. And so they're telling lies. It's not that the, it's not that Satan um, just kind of sort of dislikes the truth. Jesus says that Satan has nothing to do with the truth. There's no truth in him. And so that's the issue. Why is the church the train wreck that it is? Because there are men and women, when there shouldn't be any, there are men and women who have ascended to the pulpit or have planted churches and they are not of God. They are of the devil. The reason why they preach lies is because they cannot abide by the truth. They cannot stand the truth. Why? Because they are just like their father, the devil. If your pastor isn't preaching the truth, isn't proclaiming Christ, but is attacking sound biblical doctrine and the gospel, and there's more than one way to attack the gospel, by the way. You can attack it directly, like we heard a couple of days ago from that pastor in Indianapolis who was preaching salvation by works. You can attack it headlong, just dive right at it, go right at it. Or you can attack it by omission, by pocket veto. It's the thing that never gets preached. One is direct, the other is indirect. Both of them are attacks on the gospel. So let me leave off with Jesus' words again. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but by he, him who sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So is your pastor abiding in and preaching the word of Christ, constantly placarding Jesus and what he's done for you? Or is your pastor, well, preaching anything but that, teaching you tips on how to be successful, earn God's favor, how to make the sun stand still, or how to have your purpose, constantly running down and attacking the church, and never clearly proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified for your sins? 
and I mean you, Christian, hearing that message for you. Well, then chances are, his father isn't God, but instead is the devil, because the devil's a liar, and those who do not rightly handle God's word, they're liars as well. And by lying and constantly twisting and mangling God's word, they show you by what they preach who their father really is. All right, we are up on our second break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to hear a good sermon. Need a little bit of a break mentally from all the crazy stuff that we've been doing here at Fighting for the Faith. So if you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Think Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some. Listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time, and it's a good one. Had to take a little mental break from all the bad sermons we've been reviewing lately. Consider this like an oasis in the desert because where we go from here, <laughs> yeah. Enjoy this one. Let's let's just put it that way. Ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon 
comes to us from Bethel Evangelical Free Church, Hanley Stoke-on-Trent, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley presiding. The name of the sermon is Christ Dispelling Doubt. Now, how many times have you heard the purveyors of uh, post-modernity trying to tell us that, well, doubt's a good thing, that doubt somehow is synonymous with faith? (laughs) Au contraire. In fact, I I suspect that some of those um, those steeped in post-modernity would accuse Pastor Charmley of being a modernist. He's taking the Gospel of John, chapter 20, the story of Doubting Thomas, and, well, disavowing, disabusing us of the notion that somehow doubt is a good thing. And he's using the text to do it. As you're going to find out after hearing this sermon, that Christ is not calling us to doubt. He's calling us to believe. He's calling us to have faith, to trust in the incredible story told there by the Apostle John. And he even gets that little verse in there that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you have life in his name. All right, enough of the build-up. Let's... uh, Although you got to admit, this is brilliant. Mm-hmm. All right, enough. All right, so without any further ado, here is Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. You will note that he will begin his sermon by reading the text. He's not going to be cherry-picking verses out of context, stringing them together and making his own theology of prosperity, of favor, or anything. No, 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 no. Listen, here we go. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel according to John and chapter 20. John's Gospel, chapter 20. And of course in chapter 19 we have the account of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, how he was given up and how he gave himself up to go to the cross to die for us. Chapter 19 ends with the burial of the Lord Jesus and they left him in the tomb and thought that was the end. Then comes chapter 20. So John's Gospel, chapter 20. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter, and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloth lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head not lying with the linen cloths but folded together in a place by itself then the other disciple 
who came to the tomb first went in also when he saw and believed for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead then the disciples went away again to their own homes but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping and as she wept she stooped down and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting the one on the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain then they said to her woman why are you weeping she said to them because I have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him now when she had said this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus Jesus said to her woman why are you weeping whom are you seeking she supposing him to be the gardener said to him sir if you have carried him away tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away Jesus said to her Mary she turned and said to him Rabboni which is to say teacher Jesus said to her do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father but go to my brethren and say to them I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her then the same day at evening being the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them peace be with you when he had said this he showed them his hand and his side then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord so Jesus said to them again peace to you as the Father has sent me I also send you and when he had said this he breathed on them and said to them receive the Holy Spirit if you forgive the sins of any they are forgiven them if you retain the sins of any they are retained now Thomas called the twin one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came the other disciples therefore said to him we have seen the Lord so he said to them unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side I will not believe and after eight days the disciples were again inside and Thomas with them Jesus came the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said peace to you then he said to Thomas reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side do not be unbelieving but believing and Thomas answered and said to him my Lord and my God Jesus said to him Thomas because you have seen me you have believed blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name we trust God's blessing to rest on the reading of his most holy and precious word our text this morning is found in John's Gospel chapter 20 and verse 29 Jesus said to him Thomas because you have seen me you have believed blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed doubt doubts and fears are things that Christians experience there is no doubt without faith 
Because the man who has no faith at all never doubts. He has nothing to doubt. But the Christian very often finds himself or herself in the position of the Father in the, in the Gospels who cried out, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. We are asked to believe amazing things in the Gospels. These are not everyday events. If they were, there'd be no challenge to believe them. We are challenged to believe things that we have never seen. To believe things that the world finds incredible. And this final portion of John chapter 20 is the climax of the gospel. Many people think, and it's, it seems seems has some evidence in the text, that chapter 21 is sort of an appendix. And the gospel proper was intended by John to end with chapter 20. God had other ideas, but John intended chapter 20 to be the end. And the climax of the gospel certainly is in chapter 20, in the, the words of confession of Thomas, my Lord and my God. Here is a, a figure, Thomas, who is associated with doubt. And a man who has this great doubt of the resurrection, who is led to this climax point of faith, when he confesses that Jesus Christ is my Lord and my God. He is brought from doubt to faith. And the Apostle has been drawing us through John's Gospel to reach with Thomas this same point where we may also confess my Lord and my God. So we have here in these final verses of the chapter, first of all, doubt. Thomas's doubt. Then we have the demonstration when Jesus appears. And finally, the declaration. First the declaration of Thomas and then the declaration of Jesus. So we have the doubt. We have the figure, the man who has been characterized, perhaps caricatured down to history as doubting Thomas. He was not there when Jesus appeared to the other disciples in the upper room. And so he comes to them and they say to him, we have seen the Lord. And his response is, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now you will notice what is uppermost in Thomas's mind here. It is the wounds, the nail prints of crucifixion. It is the spear wound from the Roman soldier. From those words we can gather that Thomas was there when Jesus was crucified. He saw the wounds being inflicted. He saw Jesus die. And you can put yourself in his position. He's just seen a man die. And here, a couple of days later, he's being told he's alive. 
And Thomas thinks, I saw the wounds. I saw the nails go into his hands. I saw the spear go into his side. I saw the water and the blood. He's dead. Jesus died. And so he says, unless I can see him walking around with those wounds, I will not believe. Because I know he's dead. The death of Jesus is absolutely uppermost in his mind at this point. A dead man. Dead men do not come back. Crucified men do not come back. And that's a fact. And yet, and yet, Christ is risen from the dead. But Thomas sees the wounds, he knows the fact. People in the ancient world were no less credulous than people today, in fact. There are many times, I think, that first century people were less credulous than people today. I certainly don't see men like Peter and Thomas falling for these email scams from Nigeria. These were sensible men, serious men. He says, no, this man was dead. And his demand is in one sense, right. He is saying there must be a real resurrection. There must be a real resurrection. Thomas knew nothing of the liberal who says, well, there's a spiritual resurrection. He knows nothing of the Jehovah's Witness who says the body was destroyed. He says there must be a real resurrection. There must be a real dead body coming back to life. There can be no substitute. There can be no phantom. There must be a real man come back to life. There must be that same Jesus who suffered on the cross alive again. And he's right. There must be. It must be the man who died who comes to us. It must really be the Jesus who died. It cannot be somebody else. And it cannot be just a phantom. It must be the, the real man, body, and all. It must be the one who died on the cross. But of course, Thomas's fault, his error, was he didn't believe the reports. There are many, many things that we believe on the basis of eyewitness reports. Thomas did not believe the reports. Why didn't he believe the reports? These were men he knew, these were men he had spent three years with. These were the men whom he knew best of all, his closest friends, and yet he didn't believe them. Why? No doubt it was the sorrow that was uppermost in his mind. Jesus is dead, and that overwhelmed everything. He would not believe for grief, for sorrow, for sadness. And this is often the way that we doubt because of our trials and our tribulations. If you read a few words from old Samuel Rutherford, writing when he was persecuted and under house arrest, in exile, for the gospel, speaking to another man who was suffering because he would not 
follow what the king said should be done. He says, on my first entry, when I first came here, I should paraphrase slightly the 17th century English, when I first came here, my fears so wrought upon my cross that I became jealous of the love of Christ as being by him thrust out of the vineyard. I thought Christ had rejected me and I was under great challenges. And as Galbraith melted, cast forth a scum of dross, Satan and our corruption form the first word the heavy cross speaks and they say God is angry. He does not love you. But our fears are not scripture. They tell lies of God and of Christ's love. But the heavy cross and Satan form the words, God is angry with you, he doesn't love you. When we suffer, there is that accusation of the evil one, God is making you suffer because he doesn't love you. And then he comes and he says, as Job's comforters, miserable comforters said to him, you're suffering because you've done something incredibly wicked. And if you were, if you were a better Christian, you wouldn't suffer. If you were a better Christian, says the devil. Always the devil says this. If you were a better Christian, you would not get ill. If you were a better Christian, you would not have these trials in your family. I tell you, it is the evil one who says those. Oh, there are times when our trials are brought by our sins, but it is usually quite apparent. And very often, they come not because of our sin, but because God is testing his people as gold in the furnace. As gold goes into the fiery furnace and comes out purified, so God's people go through trials and come out purified. Satan says, God does not love you. God replies, no, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And we see this, Thomas did not leave the disciples. One of the commentators, I think it's old Bishop West, got a diary and put it this way, he said, although he didn't act like a believer, although he, rather he didn't speak like a believer, he acted like a believer. Because he stayed with God's people. In his doubts, he stayed with the people who believed. And he stayed in the place where he was most likely to have his doubts removed. The man who, in fear, in depression, in doubt, absents himself from God's people, has taken himself away from the place where Christ often meets with his people. If Thomas had absented himself from the apostles, he would never have seen the risen Lord. But instead, he stayed with the church, with the disciples, and therefore it was that Christ came to him, to the church. He was not like these modern-day skeptics who fire off a blast, a question, well, what about so-and-so, and never wait for an answer. He was a man who really was struggling with doubts, and so he waited for an answer. And so we come to the demonstration, God in Christ gives the answer. Jesus came to the disciples. 
A week later, the next Sunday, Jesus came and met with his people as they were assembled together in his name. And he comes saying peace to you. He comes to his people speaking peace. God comes to his people speaking peace. Whatever the trials are, he comes speaking peace. Christ comes, he's the one who is our peace, we're told. He's the one who's made peace by the cross. He died to give us peace. Peace with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That peace is always there. The Christian always has peace with God. You do not need to wait until you feel like it to return to God. For his arms are still open. And he always speaks peace to his people. But our experience of that peace, our inner knowledge of that peace can be disturbed. And Christ comes to us speaking peace. He comes to us in the scriptures today. We read the scriptures. There are many Christians who rob themselves of a great deal of help by not reading the Bible daily. Daily it guides us. Daily Christ speaks to us. Not only the New Testament, not only in the red letters, if you have a Bible with red letters, but in the whole of Scripture. He comes. He comes to us in the worship of the church. As we gather together, he comes to us. He comes to us in Christian fellowship. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. He comes to us in the Lord's Supper. Not physically, but spiritually. He comes to us. Mr. Spurgeon wrote that wonderful hymn, Amidst us our beloved stands and bids us view his pierced hands. And he wrote that hymn of the Lord's Supper. It's a Lord's Supper hymn. Because he was convinced by Scripture, quite rightly, that at the Lord's Supper we have a demonstration of the resurrection of Christ. We have a declaration he is the one who died and lives. And is coming again because we observe the Supper only until he comes. Christ comes to us and he comes to us with the tokens of his death and the words of grace and of love. He comes to us to reassure and not to condemn. It was one of the great discoveries, rediscoveries of the Reformation that Martin Luther made that Christ is not angry with his people. You see, in the medieval circles where Martin Luther was brought up, he was taught, Jesus is the judge. He is the stern judge before whom you have given answer. But in the scriptures he found Jesus is the saviour, the loving saviour whose blood answers for us. Thomas, with his doubts, faces the Lord Jesus. And he has not a word of condemnation. There is a slight rebuke, but it's a loving rebuke. It is not condemnation, but a word of slight rebuke. 
You should have believed, Thomas. But I am giving you this demonstration because I love you. We should not be afraid to bring our doubts and fears to Jesus in prayer. Because we know this, that he understands. He sympathizes. It's one of the things that the Bible tells about Jesus. He is able to sympathize with us. Now the word sympathize simply means to suffer along with somebody. It means that Christ understands our doubts and our sufferings completely and totally. He understands completely. He has not doubted. But he understands your doubts. And he invites you to come to him. That those doubts may be removed and dispelled by his words of grace and of peace in the cross. And he speaks to Thomas, and you will notice, he says this, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now, Thomas had said, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And now Jesus speaks his words back to him. And says, Thomas... You saw that demonstration. Here it is. Do we not see that Christ was in that room when Thomas didn't see him? That is why he knows. He is with his people when we do not know that he is there. For Christ has said to us now, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He was there, he heard Thomas say those words and he came back a week later and said to them, said to Thomas then, you want this demonstration, here it is. For he knows all things because he is God. And that is why it draws that great confession from Thomas, my Lord and my God. For you see, Christ loves his people. And those wounds demonstrate it. As a verse, it's not in our version of uh, Lo, he comes with clouds descending. It was in Charles Wesley's original, where Mr. Wesley speaks of the wounds of Christ, those dear tokens of his passion, still his dazzling body bears. Cause of endless exaltation to his ransomed worshippers. The wounds of the Lord Jesus demonstrate his love to you and me. He has suffered and died for us. And so we come to the great declaration. Thomas falls on his knees and cries out, My Lord and my God. He is convinced absolutely convinced and this is the height of Christian faith my Lord and my God now the word Lord even alone carries connotations of God because in the Hebrew in the Hebrew Bible you have the word the name of God Yahweh or Jehovah 
And when that was translated into Greek, the word they used is the word that rendered Lord here. Because the, the Jews felt the name was so holy they couldn't pronounce it. So they put Lord in its place. And so Thomas said, my Lord, as a devout Hebrew man, he'd only refer to God that way. But so that we do not have any doubt at all, he adds, and my God, you are the one who has made me. You are the one who is the God who cares for me. You are Jehovah. That's what Thomas is saying. It's no accident that this is one of the passages the Jehovah's Witnesses don't like. Because of course they say Jesus isn't Jehovah. But here Thomas is saying Jesus is Jehovah. This is Yahweh. This is the God of Israel in human flesh standing before him. And Thomas falls down and Jesus commends his faith. Because this is true. Jesus is Lord and God. And you note, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. It is not simply that Jesus is divine. It is not simply that he is Lord. It is that he is mine. The whole of Christian faith is wrapped up in these words, mine and mine. My God. Christ came for us. And faith says, this is my God, my Redeemer, my Lord. And the resurrection shows the world that he is the Son of God with power. He is God. And Thomas confesses Christ boldly here. My Lord and my God. The whole aim of John in his whole gospel is to do this, is to lead us to say, as we've read it and we see these wonders, we see the resurrection, finally to fall down and say, my Lord and my God. To fall down before Jesus and worship him. He does not say, indeed, in so many words, I am God. But all that he does, and all that he says, leads us to confess that he is God. You see, that is a far more effective way to bring men to confess Jesus as Lord, than him just saying that he is. To show that he is, to demonstrate that he is, and that leads to this confession. We come towards the end of this book and John points us back and says, read it again, read it again. For these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus speaks that word, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There is this great beatitude, this word of blessing that is spoken to those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who have not seen him. Whom having not seen, you love, says Peter, speaking to Christians many, many years later. And this faith is not blind faith, it's not faith in the face of the facts, but it's reading the scriptures, the witness of the Holy Spirit speaking in the word. 
the witness of the Holy Spirit to the Word. And that is what confirms that Christ is whom he says he is. From those early words, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. And now you and I, who have read the epistle, we have read the gospel, we have beheld something of that glory. And we are called to believe on his name. It is not simply an academic exercise. Tell us something about the past and leave us unchanged. This is writing history with a purpose to leave men to say at the end of it all, my Lord and my God. This is preaching in history. This is history as preaching. A declaration that you are to believe this record that God has given. And it is all about Jesus. All about Christ. It is written that you may believe in Jesus. There are other things that you might believe or not believe. There are truths that are important, but this truth is necessary that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And this is a necessary thing to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That He is my Lord and my God. That He is the one who has saved His people. And he is the one who died and lives forever. He knows our fears and our doubts. He knows our trials. He knows our temptation. And he comes to us speaking peace, speaking reassurance, telling us he already knows our doubts. He already knows our fears. And he does not condemn. But he comforts. And he draws from us, by his words, by his grace, that confession once again, my Lord and my God. You who are a Christian here this morning, would you, could you ever give up that confession that Christ is my Lord and my God? Some of you know a time when you didn't think he was Lord and God. Now, now he has spoken those words to you. And you have replied to him, my Lord and my God. Can you give those words up? Can you say he is anything less than Lord and God? No, you cannot. Why not? Because daily he assures the soul. Daily he speaks his words of peace. And we look to him. And daily faith is blessed. Faith receives more of Christ. It is his gift. Daily we come to him saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Daily he answers, it is I. Do not be afraid. He has done all things well. And he is Lord over all. And he is God over all. And it is to Christ, the man of Nazareth, the man who was crucified, that we commit our souls, because he is my Lord and my God. Amen. Drink it in.
drink it in. I never get, ever get bored with the biblical gospel and the real stories, the real word of God regarding what Jesus has done and done for us. Doubting Thomas, not believing that he had been raised from the dead, and with good reason, dead men don't normally come back like ever. And then when he does, he declares, My Lord and my God, and worships Jesus. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That same Jesus is alive today. That same Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. That same Jesus bled and died for you and for me. Repent, therefore, of your sins and be forgiven. That's what this good news tells us, to repent and be forgiven. And truly we are forgiven because the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world was slain for your sins and mine. Good stuff. So we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith, and I just need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. Visit our website and click on one of the two friendly yellow buttons there. Our website address is fightingforthefaith.com. And uh, the, one of the buttons says, uh, join our crew. What you're doing there is signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith. And the other one says, uh, donate. That one allows you to uh, pick the amount that you would like to contribute to uh, help us financially. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious penal substitutionary death on the cross for your sins and mine. Amen. Amen.